Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's get to it. Widely anticipated for Global Wall Street. What we're doing here, folks, is the kickoff for the new year. I'm sorry. It's now the Monday after Labor Day when Steve Eisman and I were kids. This is before Young Pharaoh's time. It was sort of that Wednesday, Thursday after Labor Day. And now, Steve, it's like now's the kickoff for the year. Tell us just your basic position, not trade by trade, but are you net long, net short, net cash? What's the tone you have going into this fall? I'm slightly net long but only slightly right now. And your conviction is, and we talked about this earlier, wrapped around not a forecast of global recession, but all the clouds that are out there from a summer of discontent, you suggest that that folds into the autumn and into next year. I mean, look, it's, it's a very weird market in the sense that everybody talks about that they're worried, and yet the market's with a 2 to 3% all-time high. It's an amazing, so, isn't it? So I don't know how worried they really are. I'm in the triple leveraged all cash fund. It's worked like a chart. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, like I said earlier on the television show, we are, with, in my mind, without question, in a global industrial slowdown slash recession. On the other hand, the consumer is employed and healthy. So the question really is, is what's happening on the industrial side, which is only about 10 to 15 percent of the economy, is that a canary in the coal mine or we're going to eventually pull out of it and, and the recovery will extend longer? And I don't know the answer to that question, but it doesn't seem to be priced into the market. The, well, let's the get to your risks. base case, Steve, and try and work that out. So last week didn't really change anything for anyone. With the manufacturing PMI, the ISM sub 50, the non-manufacturing north of 50, it's the same story. Manufacturing looks soft and non-manufacturing looks okay. And the question is outstanding, as you point out, does it bleed from one into another, from weakness into the resilience we see in the service sector? Just assign a probability to that if you can, Steve. You've got to have a base case in mind, surely. What are you thinking about that? Well, look, I'm just looking for signals. I mean, one of the more interesting indicators is going to be the earnings season that will start in October. Um, you know, the industrial companies reported weak numbers in the second quarter, but not terrible. Uh, my anticipation is that it'll be significantly worse this quarter. And then we'll see how the market reacts. Just in terms of the companies you're looking at where you expect to see some pain, what are you focused on at the moment, Steve? I mean, what am I focused on? You know, what you'll see, what you're seeing is the short cycle industrial companies have already experienced fairly significant pain. Is that bleeding into the longer cycle companies? And so that the, the problems in the industrial sector are deepening. And we'll, we won't know that till October when the companies report. Steve, I so we can talk about the European banks and other stories out there, but I want your thoughts on the stocks that keep performing, keep doing, and they go, go, go until they're not. Do you frame an Amazon or an Apple? If you want to tell us if you're long short, that's great. I'm long both of them. You're long both of them. But, but when you participate in those, there's a belief by the, the, the Apple files it'll go on forever, but there's a lot of other people out there saying, I'm watching for something to break or change. How do you watch for something to break or change in something that's beloved by, by the media and by Wall Street, by, the, by investors? Look, that's a very, very difficult question to answer. I mean, the way I think about it is companies look great until they don't, and all companies are more cyclical than you think in a recession. 
So you know, if you remember the dot-com bubble, <clears throat> what broke the dot-com bubble was not valuation. What broke the dot-com bubble was the recession and the fact that some of the dot, many of the dot-com companies' revenue growth slowed. So as a group, you know, I think it's more important to focus on is there a recession coming than, than not. So you identify some secular growth themes that you think are maybe going to come under a little bit more pressure than some people think they will? Everything always comes under pressure in a recession. That's proven time and time again. Um, you know, in the meantime, the, the, the trends of a disruption will continue whether we have a recession or not. Um, but even the disruptors will, will experience some softness in a recession. Got any shorts on at the moment, Steve? I have lots of shorts. Whereabouts? Well, I'm short a lot of European banks. Um, I'm still short Zillow, which I've spoken on this show many, many times, times. Many times. And um, I'm short some industrial companies. Go through the European banks for us as a sector ahead of the ECB on Thursday. Some people think we might get tearing on Thursday to offset some of the pain for the banks. Does that change anything for you, Steve? I mean, if there's tearing, I'm sure there'll be a rally in the European banks. It's meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. It's, you know, negative rates is just crushing. And, um, and I think it's a, a, a massive policy mistake. Are the low nominal rates in the United States as crushing? I mean, on a relative basis? Not is nearly the as, that, they're not nearly as crushing. And mm-hmm. the U.S. banks are much better, more, much better capitalized right. than the European banks. But you know, I, as I said earlier on the, on the TV show, there's a, there's a bank conference taking place today and tomorrow. And every, pretty much every bank is going to report. Uh, on f- over the weekend, Comerica basically told you that the early earnings estimates are too high because of, yeah. because of interest rates. And I think you're going to see pretty much every single bank get up and say right. more or less the same thing. What do you do with Uber, Lyft, and the coming week company if they can get this dog no, off the ground? I have no involvement. You, but would you like to have involvement in Uber and Lyft? Is it's, it a thing? I, where they I haven't involved? looked at either one in any depth. What about Twitter? I mean, there's other people out there looking at Twitter, and of course, it's had a lovely bounce lovely, here. I haven't. Yes. I don't. I don't have much of. I have no. Why aren't you in those kind of stocks? Is well, I am in some. I'm in Facebook. I'm in Google. I'm in Amazon. Yeah, but um, Amazon's not a Lyft equivalent. Come on, I'm talking about things that have never made a dime. You know, they're like the Detroit Lions. They never got it done. Generally, like Boy, to shy. Really. I generally like to shy away from such things. Okay. Are you going to buy the Jets or the Giants and fix New York's football problems? Uh, I don't have enough money to do that. Okay. Well, Not next, even close. Next, maybe the Amazon Apple trade will, will uh, work out. Steve Eisman, thank you Good so to see much. Steve Berman, update there on Apple, Amazon, the EU banking. The EU banking thing, John, is fascinating. Do you really think, John, that there'll be this tiered discussion in some form of real QE? I mean, there's going to be a real tiering discussion. <clears throat> I think that many people hope that President Draghi can push it through. The problem is, though, it's a double-edged sword in some regard, isn't it? Because if you deliver the tiering, Tom, ultimately, what does it do? It just opens up capacity for even lower interest rates going forward from here. So it's negative rates <clears throat> with some tiering. Okay, there's a little bit of yeah. pain. A whole lot more pain still to come, because if you introduce right. tiering, you can go a whole lot lower I, I, with I rates. I strongly agree with that, and I think Mr. Eisman alluded uh, to that as well. John Farrow and Tom Keane trying to help Global Wall Street and all of you listening as well on this synthesis of markets, economics, and the litmus paper known as the foreign exchange system. Dr. Englander 
is out of McGill, where he tried to make the Montreal Canadiens a few years ago, and then took a PhD at Yale University, where he defined the analysis of currency pairs, and particularly cross-asset pairs, all the intertwined linkages beneath the major currency pairs, an acclaimed career at Citigroup, and now even more advantageous to be at Standard Charter, where he's had a foreign exchange. Stephen uh, Anglander with Standard Charter with a real, not emerging market, but almost non-U.S. view. Steve Anglander, thrilled to have you on. With that, let's get your dollar call. Paul, is everybody wrong about weak dollar? I I think the dollar is not attractive, but it's very hard to sell. I think September, what we're seeing is that um, asset market peace has exploded all, all over, and you know there's a little bit of dollar selling, particularly against emerging markets and high mm-hmm. yielders. Um, but there's also a sense that September is calm in the approach to the. Um, uh, Chinese celebration of the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party takeover. So there, there's worries that the um, you know October might be more August than September. Well, within that, is it your analysis across rates, the micro analysis of the FX market? What is it telling you on a Monday morning in September? When is it is it an in- idiosyncratic mush, or is there an Englander theme to what you're seeing at Standard Charter? Look, I, I think that the you know what you saw basically from May through August was a, an accumulation of risk-off positions. Basically, from the time Trump sent his tweets at the beginning of May, um, you know, right right through the end of August, all the news was was really bad. And I think you know right now you're seeing the the unwind of this news. You know, we we were long South Africa that did very well. Uh, you know, a couple of other uh, high yielders have done well in the last couple of days. The you know the que- you know the question is everyone seems to think that they'll be able to get out, and everybody knows the October first kind of um, calendar event that once the Chinese uh, you know celebration is over, they will not have to be as calming in asset markets as they seem to want to be now. But it's not stopping asset markets from moving. I'd, I'd say that there still is nervousness there. Uh, things aren't. You know, risk on isn't bursting out. I mean, euros trading kind of soggy and a bunch of other currencies are are not going as far as you would expect them to. But the market seems relatively comfortable right now. Steve, what you're saying implies that the renminbi is in the driving seat right now. Is that essentially what you're saying? Well, I look, I I think that and Brexit. But I I think that's through, you know, if you look through... um, uh, you know, May through August, it was mostly uh, trade war, CNY reaction and counter reaction. And my guess is that we'll be, you know, vying to see which one is more important come October um, as, you know, one deadline, you know, one date passes and the other one approaches. Steve, Steve, can I conclude from your remarks in the last couple of minutes that you think the stand down in Hong Kong the talks that we're about to see between the United States and China, the relative stability over the last week in the Chinese currency, all of those things are just to stabilize things ahead of a political event in China. And then after we get into October, it's game on again. Um, yeah, I, look, I, I'd say that, you know, we, we know the incentives for things to be stable now, and it probably works for the U.S. as well to stabilize equity markets and, and you know, basically keep them close to, to all time highs. Um, They'll probably field each other out in October to see how much room there is to negotiate. There's no guarantee that things will fall apart. 
But I think that the incentives to stabilize asset yeah. markets are much stronger in September than they will be in Q4. If you're just joining us, Stephen Engler with us. He is uh, head of Global Canaries in the Coal Mine at Standard Charter. We're thrilled that he could be with us this morning. Dr. Engler, where are the canaries in the coal mine? I mean, it's the ultimate doom and gloom cliche. Steve Engler's never been a doom and gloom guy. Are the coal mines out there? And are the canaries lit up? Look, you know, I, I think that the U.S. economic data, um, you know, to say that they're mixed is, is a cliche, but they're they're mixed with, you know, some numbers, more of a concentration of numbers looking soft doesn't guarantee that things are right. But, down. but what do you see in, come on, what do you see in Singapore? What do you see? I spoke to the Chilean finance minister this morning, Dr. Lorraine. What do you see in Chile? What do you see in Singapore? What do you see in Kenya? Look, you know, certainly what we're seeing in Asia and the Chinese uh, trade numbers that came out over the weekend tells you what you're seeing is that things are soft. Um, you know, things aren't great anywhere. You know, Africa actually, you know, looks better than than many regions. Uh, if you're a commodity exporter and the biggest commodity produced uh, consumer in the world is, is kind of sluggish, then you're going to be sluggish. Um, but I'd say that, the, you know, the, the, the green shoots are, are just aren't there yet, certainly not in Asia. Um, and even though some of the countries around China should be benefiting from diversion of supply chains, the, the, the overall sort of angst yeah. and worry is, is dominating Green. that. So even there, things aren't that. This is why we love Steve Engler. Green shoots. When was the last time? I mean, I think the Queen is using green shoots with uh, Prime Minister when Johnson. When was the last time morning? someone asked for a trade on Kenya? You want to trade on the Kenyan shilling? Englander's the world, he's the world I, authority I guarantee on this. that Steve can give you a trade on the Kenyan shilling as well. Are you trying to book a vacation? No, I'm not trying to book a vacation. I just think we're with Steve Englander. He's like a giant in cross rates. Steve Thursday, ECB, base case for you. Are you looking for the full package? What is it? I, you know, we, we don't think so. We, we, we think that they're going to do 10 basis points and hold off on quantitative easing. Um, you know, which would be a disappointment to the market. What, what I'd say is that the... the um, market is, you know, just looking at where implied volatility is, it, it's quite low going into this event, uh, whereas I think that the outcomes are pretty binary. They're either going to go in with both hands because this is Draghi's last chance, or, you know, his desire for a big stimulus package will be rebuffed. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of leaning towards a more hawkish view. Uh, we should be good for the euro. It, it won't be great for bond markets, and not just in Europe, but globally. Steve, pretty much everyone I spoke to at the back end of last week coming into this trading week ahead of the ECB said to me that if we don't get tearing with a rate cut from the ECB this Thursday, the market's not going to respond well. Is that your take too, Steve? I think, look, I, I think the market expects tearing. They expect uh, a rate cut. They got 15 basis points priced in more or less, so it means that 10 isn't enough. And I think that they want, uh, you know, that there's a strong expectation that they might reannounce QE. So the yeah. market is... You know, they spent a month telling you how great the package was going to be. Um, so if they back off now, that's a major yeah. disappointment. Steve Englander, can the Kenya shilling break down under South African rand? I mean, it's been long run, strong Kenya shilling, short South African rand. We're now really on the resistance of that chart. Can we break below, rather the support of that chart? Can we break below it to ever stronger Kenya shilling? Uh I'll tell you, my you know, I have as much chance of 
being goalie for the Montreal Canadiens as they do for you know, <laughs> being able to tell you off the cuff how, how, how Kenya Shillings are is going. But I, I would say that there's a number of stories in Africa that we're looking at that are very positive. Uh, and can you give us one of those, please? Cycle. Seriously, can you I give mean, us one of those? Yeah, Ethiopia. I mean, strong growth economy, sort of uh, in a world backing away from structural reform. They seem to be kind of heading there. They, they're, they're sort of standing out. And, so you're long Ethiopia, like, seriously. Well, we, we like the Ethiopian economy, and typically that spills over into asset markets well, over time. It's not, it's not a day trade. Uh, okay, well, I'm glad to know it's not a day trade. Farrell is getting out the ticket right now. Stephen Englander, thank you so much with Standard Charter. And folks, I'm going to put out the Rand shilling chart. You'll see it first on Bloomberg Radio. Hasn't that basically been Twitter. a parity for ages? No, no. It's a one-way trade. Strong Kenya shilling versus Strong South shilling. African rand. South Tell Africa's us all about the Ethiopian beer. Mess. I don't know. The Ethiopian what? I think it's beer. The beer. double out. Might <laughs> the be beer. Maybe might the be IPA, right? Might be beer. We love doing You know, we make jokes about it, but the, we, we love having on guests with a prodigious ability well, especially as, a standard chart like great background in em yeah and frontier markets as well yeah well, we should do more of that to be honest with you carl weinberg with us right now with futures advancing, John Farrell driving futures higher, up seven, up nine, futures now up ten. We're not I'm not yet on a Dow twenty seven thousand watch, but we're getting lathered up. Carl Weinberg with us with high frequency economics. And Carl, I've got a diverge in a too short visit to your expertise on South America, which has earned over decades of debt workout. Is an Argentinian debt workout this time the same as it's always been? Uh, gee, Tom, you know, you, you flatter me. I'm not really tracking Latin America that uh, accurately right now. Uh, so I have to take a pass on the Argentine question. Really? Okay. Well, there it is. But is it idiosyncratic? Does it, is it removed? And when you look at all the other things that are out there uh, in EM, are they still idiosyncratic or they're tightening up into the autumn? Um, again, Tom, I'm not tracking the Argentine situation. I'm going to take a pass. It's not our area of expertise at high frequency. You're killing me, Carl. I've known him for a million years. And, I'm sorry, know, Tom. I'm sorry, Tom. I'm is, is this, did I say something wrong? Was it, was no, it that barbecue no. in August? John, save me here hey, with Carl, Dr. Weinberg. I, I know you're focused on the United States, and the main question for many people is the weakness that is emerging in manufacturing versus the resiliency that we see in the bulk of the economy. And the fear is that one bleeds into the other, Carl. Just frame that for us and what you're telling your clients at the moment. Yeah, well, we do have some expertise at that high frequency, at high frequency <laughs> economics quite a bit. And uh, there we're watching the divergence between the ISM index and the uh, market index very carefully. The ISM, of course, is the much longer established index, and that's showing us uh, a reading that not only rose in the last report to 55.6, but it also is consistent with about a 3% trend in annualized GDP growth. And that suggests the story that uh, we've been pushing for a long time and that we think the Fed is alluding to, which is that the U.S. economy is going to be okay. Maybe not quite that okay. The yeah. index gives us reason to, to give some pause in that thinking. But it's going to be okay despite the headwinds coming from trade. Is it okay? I mean, this is really important, folks. A recession's negative GDP growth. Is an okay economy summer's secular stagnation, or can it be something better than that all blended in? 
Well, I think it's going to be all blended in. That's a good way to think about it. There is a slowdown in growth coming from demographics. There is a slowdown in growth coming from technology. There are a number of reasons to think that growth moving forward is not going to be as brilliant as it has been in the past in the United States and elsewhere in the world. But nonetheless, there is still going to be growth on our forecast. We think the economy is going to continue to expand, uh, albeit at a modest pace, Fed easing is going to help that in the short term. In the longer term, productivity growth is going to keep us moving, and some immigration is going to keep us moving despite the demographics. And these headwinds from trade and tariffs, you know, they're not forever. They're a one-time hit on the economy, and we don't think those drags are going to get any worse, or those headwinds are going to get any worse in the, uh, in the near future. Carl, is that the case if tariffs go up again in October? Is that the case if tariffs on new products come in in December? Well, that's already in the market, John. You know, I don't think that's going to be a surprise to anybody, and I think it's already in everybody's economic plans. What we hear from people who are, uh, you know, in, out in the field is that uh, this uncertainty for trade has created a blip in investment, okay, and it's made it difficult or impossible to invest. At some point, those investments are going to get made, and at, at, at another point, we're going to reach the point where this drag, the reduction in investment is going to stop. We want to not confuse our second and our third derivatives here. So we think that the hit is there and it's real, but as long as it doesn't get any worse, it won't continue to drag on GDP growth. Carl, when you say it's already in the market, what do you mean by that specifically? Well, I think everybody knows you know, what the president's position is. Everybody is pretty sure that we're going to see this increase in tariffs coming. Uh, and I think that that's the bet in the market. You know, to be wrong would be the, 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 the case in which the tariffs are not imposed for some reason. Yeah. That would be a positive shock. So I think the worst, the worst outcomes are already discounted in the markets. But for companies, of course, even though they know it's coming, they still you know, are very leery about making investment plans until they see what's actually going to happen. So investment is depressed, but it's not going to continue to decline. Yeah. Carl, we didn't have time to get to your wonderful Marshallian cross on the Japanese sales tax. We'll save that for Wednesday. Dr. Weinberg with high-frequency economics and everything but Argentina there. She is in London. Therese Raphael joins us right now, always writing on Brexit with a wonderful sanity. And she drops by to bring us forward to a prorogued Monday as well. Therese, first of all, I've got to ask you what has absolutely galvanized all in America. I'm sorry, it's not cricket. It's not Brexit. It's the British Airways strike. The, the British people, are they in support of the company? Are they in support of American and Delta Airlines? Or are they actually in support of the pilots at British Air? All the planes out for 48 hours. I think the British people will have very little patience for British Airways right now. We'll probably be more on the side of the pilot. However, you know, school holidays are over. Many people are you know, have returned to work. So, uh, you know, and of course, Brexit has dominated uh, the news cycle. So we'll see. But I would suspect there'd be more uh, sympathy with the pilots on this one. Is it a unionized United Kingdom still? I mean, with all coming out of Clement Attlee and, you know, the labor mm, nope. battles with Thatcher. Is, is there a more union tone in England? that helps the pilots? Do you know, I mean, union, actual union membership is quite low. I would 
get it wrong if I tried sure, to cite course, the statistic of off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah. But it, we are a long way from what it was before yeah. Thatcher came and broke the backs of the back of the unions. But you know, there is a movement toward reviving. Um, labor unions by the Labor Party itself, which is still very reliant yeah. on the union. So I think we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing some of that enter back into politics. And, and uh, I would bet it will feature in the next election in some way as well. Uh, Therese Raphael, of course, on Brexit. Therese, what I do, where I'm supposed to be read in, is I look at Bloomberg News, the Brexit team. I look at your good work for Bloomberg Opinion. I look at the Telegraph, the Times, the Guardian UK, even some of the other papers as well. I'm lost. Does Boris Johnson, is this great calculation that the people of the United Kingdom are behind him? Is that what this calculation's about? Yeah, I mean, that. I, 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 first of all, I should say that we're all lost, even those of us who are following it 24-7. But I think you know, that's broadly right, that he is calculating yeah. that the people will <clears throat> stick with what they see as a strong man, somebody who's... Uh, abiding by the principle and the result of the 2016 referendum against what he's portraying as the establishment, which is Parliament and, of course, the European Union. That's his bet. That's how he's trying to uh, you know, fight the ground of the next election on the basis of uh, you know, Boris, who's trying to deliver the referendum versus Parliament versus the EU. However, there are signs that it's backfiring. And I think this period yeah. in which Parliament is prorogued is going to be key because we see Boris you know, saying that he wants a deal. Um, he right. tried to use this period for one. Rounding it up, the vote was 52% to 48%. Leave, beating, remain. At the margin, does the prime minister want to do 53 or 54% leave? Or is he hoping for something bigger than that when all this works out towards a general election? Well, he does not want to replay that referendum. And I think the polls um, suggest that that would be another closely fought referendum if it was leave versus remain. He's hoping to stitch together a new coalition for the Conservative Party, which includes all of those leave voters who were for the Labour Party before. Uh, That's why he's also promising this huge raft of spending on public right. services, which is not a very you know conservative uh, thing to do, not something we normally see from the conservative right. party. So he's hoping that will be his new majority. Uh, Therese Raphael with his Bloomberg opinion. One day, Therese, this is a number of months ago, John Farrell and I, folks, you know, usually John and I are like, we're not on speaking terms. This is one of those <laughs> windows where we're actually on speaking terms. And so John goes, let's go to breakfast. And I want to go to the McDonald's over in Third Avenue. And of course, Therese, he picks some hoity-toity place on Park Avenue. We walk in and there's Nigel Farage sitting at the bar, <laughs> you know, having a morning Bloody Mary, whatever Mr. Farage was doing. I mean, I mean, does Boris Johnson need Nigel Farage and the arch levers or can he do this with disaffected labor people alone? No, he wants Farage's voters, but he doesn't want uh, Why? Farage himself. Why? He Why likes... he's a, we talked to him. He's a nice guy. You know, he knew us, blah, he's... blah, blah. And... <laughs> You know, why yeah. does he not want Nigel Farage? Well, he doesn't want he ultimately he wants to, he wants the conservative party to be the conservative party. He doesn't want it to be a coalition of conservative party and Brexit party. He'd like to bring Farage, I, I, I suspect, Farage's entourage, Farage's party back inside the conservative party somehow. I don't think he wants a situation where Farage is capable of cannibalizing the conservative party vote yeah. and in which Johnson is forced to do a deal with the Brexit party 
to cobble together a coalition in Parliament. Oh. He wants parts of the Labour Party vote, especially in the north of England, the Labour Leave voters. He wants those Brexit Party voters, but he wants them all to be uh, inside the tent of the Conservative Party. But it's very hard, Tom, right now to say, what does the Conservative right. Party stand for? It's very different from the party of Margaret Thatcher. What do you look for seriously in the next 24 hours? I mean, it is a constitutional crisis in a nation without a written constitution. Do you look for a nod from Buckingham Palace? I mean, what does an arch watcher like you well, look for just in the next 24 hours? Well, I, I, I mean, actually, in the next 24 hours, I don't think we're going to see, you know, a massive shift. Over the next four weeks, I would look to see whether he is willing to do a deal that goes back to the EU's original plan of a Northern Ireland uh, or of sort of an all-Ireland um, uh, agreement so that Northern Ireland stays with Ireland and the EU. This was what the EU originally wanted. Remember, Theresa May said, no, it must include all of the UK, and that's how we ended up with the Irish backstop. I think if we see Boris Johnson heading more toward the direction of the original EU plan, then we're back yeah. into deal territory, but he will lose his hardline Brexiters, he'll lose Nigel yeah. Farage and his followers, and then he'll need the Labour MPs uh, from right. lead voting constituencies. Oh. That's what I'd be looking at over the next few weeks. Over the next 24 hours, I think we see things <clears throat> go a little bit quiet. No, no, for the next 24 hours, Teresa, what I, you're, you're stuck at Terminal 5. You're going nowhere. <laughs> I recommend the Fortnum and Mason bar there. <laughs> on the first floor where you can sit. And that's not like a bar, folks, with alcohol. You can sit there and have 47 cheeses from Scotland or whatever it is. I'd recommend that. From Terminal 5 at Heathrow, Therese Raphael writing up on British Air uh, and also this small political matter in London called Brexit as well. For Bloomberg Opinion, really, really must read uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.